Welcome to Sentient Planet. The industry would not exist if it wasn't for selling the Europeans and the Americans. So they are taking advantage of this sort of uh, lack of understanding of what's going on with this commercial product. And so, you know, the first thing we would say to your listeners is check out your products, particularly pet food, particularly soccer boots, particularly handbags. Check out whether it's got kangaroo in it, because as I explained, Europe is the largest importer. The United States is the second largest importer of kangaroo meat. I'm Susan Woodward. I was chatting with a guest after recording a recent interview, and she asked me if I knew about Mick and Kate McIntyre and their work on behalf of animals in Australia. Well, I hadn't heard of Mick and Kate, so I looked into them. It turns out they're a documentary filmmaking duo, and back in 2018, they released a damning expose about a secretive industry that every year with the blessing of state and federal Australian government officials, is hunting down and killing hundreds of thousands of wild kangaroos. It happens out of sight, under the cloak of night, in the remote outback. The animals are turned into meat and hides, mostly for European and American markets, for consumers who often don't realise exactly what they're consuming. The joey offspring of female kangaroos who are shot and killed is a byproduct that is bludgeoned to death on the spot. I watched the documentary, it's called Kangaroo, A Love-Hate Story. Like any right-minded person, I was appalled by the lack of regulation and the abject animal cruelty it revealed. And then the questions arose. I grew up in Australia. I had some remote awareness of roo shooters in our culture. But how did I not know about the modern scale and commercialization of kangaroo killing? Now the largest slaughter of wild terrestrial animals that takes place anywhere on the planet. How had I not heard about Mick and Kate's film? Well, if I hadn't, then lots of other people hadn't either. Hence today's show. I needed to ask the McIntyres what, if anything, had changed since their film came out. This is not a pleasant podcast, but we can't change the mad and wholesale killing of non-human animals for the profit of a few humans if we don't look in the direction of what's really going on. As an Australian, this is also an embarrassing podcast. Tolerating these shooting massacres of kangaroos an unsuspecting, gentle herbivore that has coexisted on the landscape for millennia would be like Tanzanians allowing hundreds of thousands of zebra to be shot down on the Serengeti, which of course they don't. I ask you to please listen and then go to our show notes and social media for some actions you can take to make your voice heard on this. You can make a difference. This really needs to end and soon. Hey, Mick and Kate, welcome to Sentient Planet, and thank you for coming on. This is a particularly tough topic to talk about. I don't think there's been another episode that we've done to date that's anything quite like it, because what you guys have exposed in your film 
is a cruel and barbaric slaughter of wild animals on a scale unprecedented anywhere in the world. You know, we try not to overwhelm our listeners with graphic descriptions of animal cruelty and suffering, but there was no way after seeing your film that I could turn away from what's happening to the gentle and much beloved kangaroo down there in my Australian homeland. So I think we need to rip off the band-aid and face reality at a high level to begin with, at a high level to begin with. What is going on with the killing and maiming of wild kangaroos down under? Yeah, thanks for having us. I like your description of ripping the band-aid off. We really, in making this film, have shone a light on a very dark secret here in Australia. And that dark secret is the way we really treat our magnificent icon, the kangaroo. And the way we treat it is that we subject it to the largest wildlife slaughter on the planet. I'll say it again. It's the largest wildlife slaughter on the planet. There are more kangaroos killed every year in Australia than any other terrestrial animal in the world. You know, that needs to be brought to everyone's attention. And that's what we set out to do in making this film. Uh, we had no idea as we were starting the film that it was that it was as bad as what we discovered. The treatment of kangaroos started out as being a farm management device or a tool and that the public sort of got behind it because, you know, we've got to support the farmers. And if the kangaroos are competing, which, they, you know, which we found out they're not, but if they are, then, you know, there was this perception that we're helping out the farmers by controlling their numbers. But what's happened is it's now become a full-blown commercial industry. So that excuse for helping the farmers doesn't exist anymore. It's just a full-on commercial industry. These kangaroos are slaughtered every night across Australia for products that nobody really needs and that products are mostly, mostly bought by Europeans and Americans. And I'm sure we'll unpack that as we keep talking, but we have uncovered this dark, dark secret in Australia. And, you know, as an Australian, I carry the name of that. Um, it's really, really, really a barbaric uh, situation that's going on right now. Now, the kangaroo as a native animal is actually a legally protected species. So can you help us understand how a protected animal can be slaughtered? Yeah, the situation in Australia is terrible. I don't think it's, I'm sure you find examples of this in other countries around the world where animals can be protected by law in Australia, both state and federally. Yet there can be loopholes. Really what we found was a hate for kangaroos since the colonial times. Uh, there's writings and paintings and descriptions of when white people first came, they were removing them from the landscape. It was a sport that hurt them into these small uh, fenced off areas and kill thousands at a time. As someone who sort of believes that someone out there must really be protecting your wildlife because surely that makes sense. Actually, these loopholes allow, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of kangaroos to be killed every year or more across the landscape in Australia. So could you talk to me a little bit about uh, what the industry is and who it's serving? So um, I'm assuming that the animals are being killed for meat products and skin products. Who is doing the killing and what is happening? Where are those products going to around the world? The commercial kangaroo industry has stepped in and taken advantage of this ignorance, if you like, of what's going on. And they're taking advantage by going in on farmer land and extracting because it's an extraction. We, we decided it is identical to a fisheries. This industry is now sending commercial shoes to extract the kangaroo and to sell it to the meat processing works who then process the meat and the skins for export. 
the industry would not exist if it wasn't for selling the Europeans and the Americans. So they are taking advantage of this sort of uh, lack of understanding of what's going on with this commercial product. And so, you know, the first thing we would say to your listeners is check out your products, particularly pet food, particularly soccer boots, particularly handbags, check out whether it's got kangaroo in it. Because as I explained, Europe is the largest importer. The United States is the second largest importer of kangaroo meat. So over here in the US, are there consumer label laws that are going to identify kangaroo on those products? Or is it going to take more digging for a consumer to understand? Yeah, it's going to take some digging. And this is, an, again, part of the secretive nature of this industry. The labelling laws leaving Australia are really vague. But no, but we have found that particularly pet food, you can see whether it's got kangaroo in it. I know Adidas and Nike and ASIC and a number of the big soccer cleat brands, it doesn't take much digging to find out whether they're made from kangaroo skin. There's quite a bit of exotic meat. We call it exotic meat in the sense that restaurants are serving it as sort of a game meat. So no, there's, there's plenty of opportunity for consumers to find out where it is. We saw it as like a jerky in yep. um, California, yep. which we were surprised at because California is the only state in America that has banned the import of kangaroo products. They, and we cover that in the fur quite extensively yeah. and, and good on the Californian legislator for upholding that law because California is a huge market and the Australian government has continually lobbied the California legislator to overturn that ban. And one of the things that we love to see happen is that other state legislators follow suit from California to create their own bans because these are products that nobody really needs. So it's not like a huge industry that it affects thousands of people. It doesn't. I mean, there's plenty of different things you can use. And, you know, with the new markets, there's so many different things being invented to make soccer boots. Synthetic materials. Yeah, synthetic materials. I mean, I think the thing that really affects uh, people the most is when they hear it's actual wildlife because many people in uh, America and around the world and even here in Australia believe there's some sort of farming going on. And that's been a thing that we really uncovered in the film from the general public was oh, these animals are not farmed. They cannot be farmed. They're wildlife and their biology doesn't allow them to be herded and bred like that. It's It's impossible to farm them, man. Thank goodness, because, you know, why would we want to be doing that to our icon? Right, Um, yeah. Doing any more damage than we are now. So could you guys describe um, for us how those animals are removed from the landscape? That's a a big question. That's that's, that's (laughs) ripping the bandit off. The system is a pickup truck with a very strong light. It's, you know, it's, it's been around a long time, this system. They haven't improved on it, which makes it even more inhumane. Basically, a, a shooter goes out with, a, with literally a high-powered sniper rifle, very strong light, and from a huge distance, they are required by a code of practice to hit the kangaroo in, in the head, and, of course, they don't. So because they literally, they can be up to 100 and 200 yards away, so that's the major issue. We know for a fact, we, we've seen it with our own eyes and there's papers on this that the way they shoot them is incredibly cruel because the percentage of misshot is upwards of 40%. So 40% of the kangaroos are misshot, which means they bleed, bleed to death. I will go on. The horrible, horrible collateral damage of this industry is the females carrying the baby joeys. Yeah. And when they are shot, the baby Joey is in the pouch and 
Again, we've seen this. This is happening every night. I won't go into too much detail except to say that they then kill the baby Joey and that, again, is so barbaric that, again, I carry that shame as an Australian because it's just in the 21st century that is not how we should be treating a national icon. And then those killed animals are actually butchered in the field. The intestines and the head and the the limbs are left in the field and this gutted carcass, if you like, then left on the back of this pickup truck for hours in the Australian heat. And again, there's papers on this and independent testing that when this um, gutted carcass is left in the heat with the blow flies, then become racked with bacteria, E. coli and salmonella. There's no disputing this from the government or the industry. So then those gutted carcasses are driven to a cool room the next morning, and then that cool room is then delivered to the meat processing work. You can really sense that it's a bit like the Wild West, the last frontier out there in the way they do this. Australia is quite an empty country, and generally this happens at night when everyone else is asleep. And while the government and the industry is very keen to tell you that it's all monitored, actually at the recent state inquiry, we found this is impossible across the country to monitor. So therefore, 40% of the animals are misshot and no one's watching. We draw the parallel in the film, thanks to Professor Peter Singer, to the clubbing of the baby seals in Canada. Yeah. And the difference, he says, is that the clubbing of the baby seals is done in the daylight on the white ice so you can see the effects of, of the practice. As documentary filmmakers, it was our duty to bring some of this footage to people's attention. Yes, that section or those sections of the film that show the impact on innocent baby animals is definitely the toughest part of the film to watch. Mm. What I'm hearing is that the industry is unregulated and therefore there aren't even any animal welfare laws that would give care and consideration to the pain and suffering of these animals as they're hunted and killed. That's right. The federal government and the state governments are all linked in, the, in this sort of cover-up. They say that the industry is under a code of practice. This code of practice, of course, is voluntary. I think we've exposed it. I think the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry has exposed it as an absolute joke. What we want to see happen, not only stopping this, but that the state cruelty laws, you know, Australia has some really strong cruelty laws. Why aren't they being implemented? I mean, it just goes to show that this industry goes along with a lot of the attitude, this sort of colonial attitude in Australia that, you know, we can do whatever we like to the wildlife if there's a reason for it and if we can find a loophole in the law. And we'll continue to push for everyone to know how barbaric and cruel it is. I mean, I think uh, it sounds like Australians don't really care, but I think Australians don't really know is the gist that we found making the film and, you know, from the screenings we've had afterwards. Of course, international people don't know, but Australians are led to believe constantly that there's millions of these wildlife around Australia. There's plenty to be killed and they're a nuisance they take grass. There's a lot of propaganda against kangaroos that allow people to stop caring and to stop asking questions about this industry. When we've told Australians or we've seen the film or when they've, you know, been involved with conversations, they're shocked and they, you know, stop buying it for their dog food and they stop thinking it's a good meat to uh, be sold. Actually, the government funds propaganda or publicity promotions for the industry for them to make it sound all good. 
there's a general sort of apathy based on an ignorance that everybody has. So somebody's making a lot of money, obviously, out of this industry. Do you have any idea how much it's worth? That's the irony of it. It's not a huge industry. This is an industry that seems to be just allowed to function for whatever reason, and it seems to be vertically integrated with some influential politicians, both in federal and state parliament. It is a mystery why it is so protected because the figures that were uncovered in the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry, you know, state 150 to $200 million a year. It's not a big industry compared to the billions of dollars that are generated by our livestock industry. So it's a small boutique industry that no one would miss. It's a cultural thing. It's some part of our colonial right to do this. The propaganda that there are too many, so we're still helping the farmers out. I can't emphasize enough how big that is out there in the bush. We're helping the farmers out by eating kangaroo. That's a big one. Hmm. You know, we uncovered that taking on the farmers in Australia is sort of like taking on returned servicemen. It's a big issue here. So there's a lot more to it than the money. So we're talking about a mentality then. And you've talked about some of the cultural aspects related to that. I think it's interesting that at the top of this interview, you guys talked about this in terms of an extraction, which makes me think of the other things that we extract from the landscape in Australia, right? All of our iron ore and our golds and silvers and leads and um, uranium. Uranium's another big one. And so the attitude that seems to come from our so-called political leaders about those extractive industries, it's there for our taking. And I think what I hear you guys saying is that same kind of attitude seems to be what's perpetuated and affecting our wildlife as well. Yeah, if you look at fisheries around the world, and I just stick to Australia, if you look at fisheries in Australia, they have no qualms about extracting until they're gone and then they move on. That's exactly what they're doing with kangaroos. So in the state of New South Wales where in Queensland, where we've focused much of our research, they have extracted the kangaroo populations until they're gone. So we now have local and regional extinction of kangaroos. We now have local and regional extinction of species of the big four kangaroos because they don't care. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defence and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. We have had the great privilege of uh, traveling thousands of kilometers in making the film and then and also touring with the film. And I found myself being quite respectful of communities when we were there. But, I, you know, my tune has changed to the point now where I'll, if I go into a rural community, I will actually say, okay, guys, do you want kangaroos on the landscape? Because it gets down to that question. And generally, I get a yes. And I go, okay, well, if you do want them in the landscape, 
We need to talk about how we can coexist with them because right now there's no attitude of coexisting. There's just an attitude of getting rid of them. So that's what I found personally because I'm really sick and tired of this attitude of we need to get rid of them, we need to deal with them because right now we're going to lose them. And that's a tough conversation for a lot of people in the bush. And farmers have to be part of the solution. There is some great work being done to find farmers that are willing to be part of the solution. Um, and are we willing to invest in coexistence strategies? All over the world, we have to learn and value coexistence with wildlife and wild places. You know, we just separate ourselves so much from that idea. It feels like we're inordinately reluctant to discuss that or invest in that, particularly with wildlife everywhere. Yeah. It's just incredible for me to, to hear what you're saying about local and regional extinctions down there. That just blows my mind. I mean, you know, when I grew up in Australia, there were kangaroos everywhere. It's hard for me to imagine an animal that's been so prevalent on the landscape disappearing. I mean, it's, it's just yeah. shocking to hear that. The Animal Justice Party, which is a political party here in Australia, um, and they actually have three elected uh, MPs in Australia. Last summer and this summer, they did this social media exercise asking for kangaroo on the landscape stories because we keep getting told by people in the bush, you know, we don't know what we're talking about. There's too many of them. You know, as filmmakers, we wanted to show this magnificent animal no sort of numbers. So we begged all these people in the bush that were threatening us and telling us we didn't know what we were doing because there were so many of them. We begged them to, sh to tell us when there were these numbers so we could come out and film them. We didn't get one response. We didn't get one lead. Not one. Yeah. So interesting. To follow on, the Animal Justice Party, the last two summers, they're asking people to send in their kangaroo stories. And it's really, really, really backs up what we're saying because what they're getting in these social media stories is that people aren't seeing them on the landscape. Just, yeah, it's chilling. Let's set that up a little bit, Mick, um, so to help people understand again another part of the culture down there because we do have, obviously, um, shooters and, and farmers. There is a mentality with at least a segment that these animals are a so-called pest, that they have reached plague proportions and need to be culled as if the work that they're doing is noble and for the greater good, right? Um, yeah. What is that all about? Yeah, well, I mean, we've always had that since colonial times. I think when the you know Europeans first arrived, they didn't like the landscape here in general. They found it alienating and it was full of wildlife they hadn't had at home. They wanted to change it. You know, they didn't ask and didn't stop to learn what was going to grow better or, you know, what the animals were doing, how the Indigenous people learned from the kangaroos and learned from the way of life that they had discovered over the last 50,000 years, you know, how to be on this continent. Everything you just said has just been passed down from generations, this idea that change the landscape to how you want it. I mean, and we've filmed on these farms. They're putting out these huge fences to stop any wildlife moving through large tracts of land without any scientific evidence that that's a good idea, you know, without any tribute to what the wildlife do in the ecosystem and what the fences are doing to the ecosystem. So, you know, we're really locked into an idea still, I believe, in many, many parts of Australia that we can change the ecosystem and get rid of the wildlife and nothing will happen. It sounds very fear-based, doesn't it? I can just imagine people coming from their perfect controlled landscapes over there in Britain and then coming over to Australia in the 18th century with all of its incredible wildlife 
animals they've never seen or conceived of before. It's a very <laughs> rugged place. It, I can see how there could be a fear response. That's kind of what I'm hearing um, historically. Yeah. And yet it continues to this day. Yeah, no, Kate's right. It has got passed down from generation. And unfortunately, what's happened in the 21st century is the perfect storm of climate change. We filmed in these extraordinary properties, both New South Wales and Queensland, that have been decimated by a combination of hard-hooved sheep and cattle and climate change. One of the properties that's featured in the film, the, the farmer tells us that the kangaroos are causing all the damage. And I looked at him and said, mate, you seriously telling me that this landscape has become this barren landscape because of the kangaroo? That's been around for millions of years. <laughs> Hasn't harmed the landscape in millions of years. It's clear that hard hoof animals and climate change, which basically means that the droughts are getting longer and more frequent in Australia, because we used to have a cycle of droughts in Australia, but we would come out of it and there would then be good times. But I think it's a bit of a perfect storm for the farming uh, industry in Australia because these droughts are getting longer and more frequent, which means something has to give here. And the kangaroo seriously is being used as a fall guy right now because clearly the farming practice in Australia are not going to be sustainable. Right. And then, of course, since your film was published, you've had the great black summer climate change bushfires down there which wiped out billions and billions of animals. I can only imagine the havoc they wreaked on kangaroo populations. So they've had that massive impact over a very short period of time as well. And how are they supposed to recover? Mm. Susan, there's stories of shooters waiting on the edge of forests, of burnt forests as the kangaroos limped out. I mean, that is just a weird and sick idea that, you know, these kangaroos are fleeing. The ones that could flee, as you said, billions died. It's not like an unknown idea. We know billions of, of wildlife were destroyed in the fire, yet we didn't stop the shooting of kangaroos following the fires. In New South Wales, they actually lessened the laws at that time so that farmers didn't even have to apply for permits to count the numbers of kangaroos they were killing. So it's a very weird idea and almost inconceivable how it keeps going. In fact, in the end of 2021, we had a state inquiry to the management of kangaroos in Australia and the cross-party committee were completely horrified by what they heard. The Indigenous people, the carers, the people are on the front line. They were so shocked. And scientists working, uncovering so many discrepancies in the whole system. It was for us, you know, gratifying to see how horrified in a way they were at what was happening to kangaroos because up until that point, no one was talking about it. And finally, a government was talking about it. Unfortunately, one month later, the Federal Minister and the State Minister for the Environment sanctioned another five years of the same. So we're a little back to square one. Uh, I, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. What was the final outcome then? There must be a bunch of recommendations. Have they been shelved? I thought that I heard that the inquiry was actually shut down. The good news is Mark Pearson, the MP from the Justice Party, has fought tirelessly and succeeded in getting that inquiry back up. Oh, very good. And yes, the inquiry has released its report and recommendations and, and no surprise, very damning the kangaroo industry, very damning of, of the management and yes, a whole list of recommendations and the New South Wales government um, have until April to either endorse the recommendations or ignore them. So that is, is very much ongoing. Okay. 
Let me ask you a question, Mick, because it reminds me of the parliamentary inquiry that the same New South Wales government did after the bushfires into what's happening with the Australian koala down there. And all of these incredible recommendations were made and everybody's eyes were opened, and yet nothing's actually really changed in terms of government getting involved and making the kinds of mitigations and efforts that were recommended that could bring that animal back from the brink. So how hopeful are you that there might be something here that changes things for the outcome for the kangaroo? Yeah, look, I, thanks for bringing up the koala inquiry because if you wanted to be very pessimistic, you could say, well, if they've ignored the koala recommendations, then what hope have we got with the kangaroo recommendations? The koala is a much easier animal to get care for. There, there isn't that col- so much of that colonial attitude to getting rid of them. We have mixed hope. I think given that it's the first time in 25 years that Parliament has, has shone light on this issue, we see that as being a, a huge positive. We now can see that it's opened people's eyes to it. Whether this particular government does anything, that's a really big question. And based on what they did with koalas, probably not. But the fact is that it's now on the public record and there's certainly no turning back. And I think most of your listeners know that legislative change is always the last thing to happen. The public groundswell is still building and legislative change will come, um, I have no doubt, because, you know, this is our national icon and I think generally people do want to coexist with it. It will eventually turn. I just want to ask you guys, how did you come to hear about just how widespread and horrific this largest slaughter of terrestrial wildlife on the planet was occurring there in Australia? I mean, so I grew up there. And I didn't leave Australia until my mid-twenties. And I had some faint idea that, you know, you see the pickups and you see the guys heading out with their six-packs and their, and their rifles. You have a sense that they're going out there to hunt kangaroos. But back in that time, it wasn't a commercial industry like it is now. And so, again, the film is quite shocking in showing just how widespread and how deep the hooks are. How did you guys hear about it? What motivated you to go and take a much closer look at this than the rest of us who have a sense that this is going on but have never dug into it in this kind of depth? Obviously, the kangaroo is so widely known all over the world. They say it's the third most recognisable symbol of you know, any country. You know, it's the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty and the kangaroo. Even if you don't speak English and you're from the far side of the world, you've got a kangaroo in your backpack, someone will know where you're from. <laughs> it's such a charismatic icon. People travel all over the world to come and see a kangaroo in the wild. It's a, you know, just to see them there, it's great. The hopping is surreal and wonderful. And, you know, they seem to be able to bound over all sorts of, you know, rough landscapes. In general, a kangaroo is a great subject for a documentary just itself in all its natural beauty. But like you, we had heard, you know, we knew that there was a real discrepancy in the culture about kangaroos. And, you know, while we love waving them on flags at the Olympics and, you know, having them on masses of companies and putting sports teams, sports, all our sports teams have got that <laughs> reference. Well, Qantas, the national airline carrier, has a kangaroo on its tail for crying out loud. Yeah, Qantas. Yeah. I mean, everything. So we thought, wow, what a weird story that we just absolutely love this animal and appear to absolutely hate it. So that was sort of just a weird idea. As as filmmakers, that was was enticing. It it? just seemed like, I mean, 
obviously when we started researching, I mean, it wasn't. It was we one had of no our, idea. No idea. It was one of our first <laughs> interviews actually with a government scientist who told us it was the largest uh, slaughter of wildlife in the world. We didn't know that when we first started. So as we started to dig, prepare the film, we really started to find out actually what was going on at a much deeper level because like most Australians, we had no idea how big it was and how, how damaging the animal welfare issues and sort of how gross it is. And the, and the, other, the other thing is uh, whistleblowers came forward. And whistleblowers. The extraordinary yeah. thing about being a documentary filmmaker is that you meet all types of people and once word got out that we were making the film, people came forward with footage. All of a sudden, the film takes on a new shape, right? You start seeing this footage, you start seeing what people have been witnessing, and you're like, oh, my God, this is way bigger than we ever imagined. And, yeah, yeah there definitely seemed to be some weird gap between, you know, what the industry was saying as to what people on the ground were saying. And what you people know, were witnessing. And what people were witnessing. So, you know, it became a very intriguing sort of investigative piece after that, and we kind of knew this was a very strange phenomenon and that the rest of the world and Australia would be very interested. Yeah, I mean, we're very proud of how investigative it is. We, I don't think we set out to make such an investigative piece, but we realised that, you know, given all this evidence, you know, we had to and, and uh, it took on a life of its own. And of course, now you continue to advocate and campaign on behalf of that animal. It's not like you made the film and put it out there into the world and then you... We did not expect to set up a not-for-profit Kangaroos Alive. That was certainly not on our radar. And (laughs) um, so we have Kangaroos Alive that is now, you know, working to, you know, protect and coexist with kangaroos. And and Sadly, in a way, I say one of the leading um, wildlife groups working for kangaroos because really we're surprised how... Few. Few wildlife, you know, especially of the large groups, were even working on kangaroos. There was no full-time campaigners. There were no campaigns. And we really tried. We thought, actually, when we finished the film, that it would be a fantastic piece for a whole group for them of to take over. organizations to take over. We had many meetings to set that up, and that didn't happen. And so, in a way... <laughs> we were know, forced to, in a way. Sometimes you have to do what's in front of you. Of course, we've fallen in love with the kangaroos and, <laughs> you know, we feel incredible responsibility for the people we met along the way. But To help them. Yeah, to, and to help the kangaroos, you know, on their behalf. So we keep going and um, more and more people are getting involved around the world, which is great. We need a way bigger team and way a way bigger mob. mob. And I think, unfortunately, it. for wildlife in general, the coronavirus has sort of taken up a lot of people's headspace. But, you know, hopefully as we, you know, come into 2022, uh, the wildlife and the environment will be back on the political platform a lot more and uh, have people really fighting for that. Of course, the environment and wildlife and coronavirus and other viruses are all interconnected very deeply. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that we have um, 
benefited enormously from getting to know the kangaroo. I such, such good fortune to spend time with them, um, often, you know, days on end trying to get the shots and lots of funny stories about how hard they are to film. And <laughs> But we were still in their company, especially in the wild, where there are still some healthy populations left. And, you know, what a privilege that's been. Um, and, you know, taking on that responsibility to, to tell their story um, and to work uh, with Greg and Diane, who who run the Kangaroo Sanctuary, and they've come on board with us in setting up Kangaroos Alive. So we now fundraise to um, run that Kangaroo Sanctuary in the Blue Mountains here in in Sydney. Um, and so that's been a great blessing for us. And you know, I'll give a plug out to people to check out Kangaroos Alive because uh, you know we obviously we are a charity and we need funds to help run that sanctuary and also help us do this advocacy work. We are still making films and we've got another film coming out very soon, but on the side, we are running Kangaroos Alive. So please, if your listeners want to check it out, it's pretty simple. If they Google Kangaroos Alive, they'll find us on all the social media platforms. Thanks, Mick. We'll definitely create um, a couple of calls to action around that. I'm glad you brought up about the time that you've spent in the wild with these beautiful animals and what a privilege that was. And I'm sure you learned all sorts of things. Can you give our listeners from that experience a little bit of your understanding of who these animals are? I mean, certainly in the film, you do a beautiful job of showing how social and maternal they are. But would you like to talk about what you learned about that animal? Who are these animals? Yeah, look, what a privilege it is to, you know, I mean, to be a filmmaker is a privilege in itself, but to spend time with kangaroos in, at your work is great. And um, working alongside Diane and Greg, who live at the Kangaroo Sanctuary and talking with them a lot, I mean, they are the most social creatures. They talk to one another, they move together. There's, you know, matriarchs that raise orphaned other joeys. They, the aunties. The aunties look after, the uncles all come in and teach. You know, there's literally family groups that stay together. They are incredibly gentle with each other. They move across the landscape and, you know, they have areas that they are more familiar with and would perhaps we would say call home, but they'll also move across the landscapes to different areas. They're just beautiful, gentle creatures. You know, they boy box and do a lot of learning how to stand up for themselves and, you know, the bigger males have to go off and find other groups to be with like many wildlife. But, boy, their um, willingness to look after one another and to work together and, you know, they have uh, song lines which they follow across the countryside. I mean, Indigenous people, we haven't talked much, but they have a whole realm of information and history and relationship with kangaroo that we, you know, never had bothered to ask when we first arrived as colonisers what we could learn from being in the company of these creatures that have survived over sort of 20 million years on this continent. So, you know, they're what we would perhaps call first Australians, and they really have evolved to cater to the droughts and the, you know, the rains and the changing landscape of this huge and extraordinary continent, Australia. Unfortunately, the sanctuary is, as you'll see in the film, afflicted by shooting. And so they often are confronted with having to rescue orphan joeys. 
the ability for the mob to take in the orphan Joey is very moving for me to watch because the, the aunties, as they call them, just take it in without question. And so there's this understanding of just looking after each other. And one of the things I also learned by spending time in the sanctuary is that farmers who think that the kangaroos are on their landscape eating, often the kangaroos are on the landscape socialising. They will pick paddocks as their sort of hangout and Greg and Diane are proving this, that they're not actually there because they want to eat the grass. They're there because they have these habitual areas that they like just to socialise and that's where they go and groom and hang out in the sun. And So there's so much that we don't know about kangaroo behaviour that, you know, we're really proud to be involved with the sanctuary who are, you know, showing the world, you know, the various aspects of how caring and social and sentient these beings are. Um, And I hope, you know, a lot of your listeners get to experience them in the wild because they really are, really are special and unique. They are just such a beautiful animal and their gentleness that you're describing, it really makes the bizarre and barbaric way they're being treated um, even more of a, of a betrayal for sure. Yeah, they're not a predator. They're a, you know, soft-footed herbivore and they literally don't harm anything. As opposed to the hard-hooved, domesticated livestock. As a mother, I'm overwhelmed at how big they let these joeys <laughs> climb in and out of their pouches, you know, like they really lug around quite big sort of joeys that you would, we would prefer at foot, you know. And then they probably only have about eight joeys in a lifetime and they say perhaps two of those will survive. So uh, This idea that they breed like rabbits is an absolute disgusting myth. They are really slow breeding and we're, we're really out to bust that myth that there's too many of them. In fact, we're proving quite the opposite. I mean, the other, the other thing uh, they've evolved is, is dealing with the heat. They, they're mm-hmm. very good at resting in the heat of the day. We learned that by filming that the only times of filming kangaroos is early morning and late, at, late afternoon. That makes sense to me. <laughs> I know, doesn't it? I know. It's like, yep, that's it. that makes sense. It's the only time any of us should be out under the sky there. <laughs> um, what's happening, guys, with the government and industry's efforts to kind of bamboozle countries like China and Russia into thinking that buying kangaroo products in the form of meat and skin, I think it's particularly meat in those two countries, is a, is a good idea. Well, I mean, we travelled to China with uh, the Mark Pierce and the MP who was lobbying the Chinese government not to accept kangaroo imports. And so far, so good. I think the Chinese um, are very uh, cognizant of hygiene. They're very cognizant of the cultural aspects. Despite what people think of China, there's a big part of their culture that is very caring. We went with an Indigenous elder who really explained that we wouldn't eat your panda, so please don't eat our kangaroo. And, and I was there in the room when they called these ministers, and they really got it. They really understood that, yeah. So, so far, so good with China. Mick, so far, so good. Does that mean that China is not importing kangaroo products? Correct, correct. That's a huge win, isn't it? It is a huge win and we'll obviously, you know, I know there's a lot of work to, to make that, you know, long term. Russia 
Again, food hygiene, uh, it still is uh, bans kangaroo meat, uh, um, which is, again, a huge victory. Um, they conducted their own hygiene tests of the kangaroo meat and were just appalled at how um, contaminated the meat was. So Russia is still banning kangaroo meat. So Well done. Yeah, well, that's worked before us. I mean, that preceded the film. Well, sure, but it seems like you kind of sealed the deal <laughs> when, you took, when you took that visit with um, Uncle Max, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And is that the older Uncle Max who passed away recently? Yeah, we lost Uncle Max last year. He was 85 and he had done some amazing work for kangaroos. We're incredibly grateful his legacy, for him. Yeah. His legacy lived on. That news did reach me over here, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, his legacy lives on every day. And then we turn our attention to Europe and America. And the good news is we were invited to screen the film in the EU Parliament in Brussels, and the effect was immediate. Uh, we have over 100 members of the European Parliament now working on a bill to ban kangaroo imports into Europe. Wow. Within the next year or two, we, we expect that bill to be put to the Parliament, and obviously your listeners can keep track of that by following us on social that would be a huge victory and possibly the end of the kangaroo industry. Um, and then in America, we would love to see other state legislators take on what California's done. And the other thing that there has been a bill um, put to the US Congress in, in DC, which is also being considered. And again, legislative change is very slow. So there is stuff going on in America. So yeah, there, there is progress. And I think if we shut down the markets in Europe and America, we would shut down the industry because they, they wouldn't survive on, on Australian consumption. No wonder you guys are getting some threats from some quarters. Uh, yes. So that's where your listeners can really help out. Yeah, you bet. What's the next film that you guys are working on? So uh, one of the things that actually came out of Kangaroo was we met some amazing people across the planet wildlife carers and activists, and our new film uh, was actually a TV series called Eating Plants. We're very interested in new and sustainable ideas. There's six episodes uh, around the world looking at the way countries are adopting and adapting to more of a plant-based diet. Where will that be shown, that series? It's being sold to TV shows around the world as we speak and uh, will also be available via our website Eating Plants TV up in the next couple of months. Oh, fantastic. I think um, uh, for our own mental health, we made an intention that we needed to do something uplifting. Making kangaroo had a huge impact on us. Whew, we are literally still recovering from the effects of not only making it, but having to bring it to people's attention. So eating plants has been an absolute delight. I think that's a really great thing that you guys have focused your next film on something uplifting and that's a really good example of taking care of self, right? The whole kangaroo piece is um, very difficult, really hard to get your head around how anybody can be okay with that. And as you have pointed out quite clearly in this interview, when Australians in particular understand and are exposed to what's really going on, they're just as shocked and want it to end as badly as I do or anybody else. Please go on to kangarooTheMovie.com and, and watch it because I think it does give a lot of information as, as well as shock. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful film for exactly that reason and obviously it's having a lot of impacts. Thank you so much for having us on your show. We really enjoyed it. It's great to chat about this huge topic with people that care. It gives me a lot of hope in the world to see that there's other 
people out there that are really tackling these issues head on. So thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.